Higher Voltage is brought to you by Salesforce. Today's higher ed marketers face new challenges and must expand beyond traditional tactics to engage their many audiences. Learn how Salesforce empowers institutions of all sizes to unify first-party data, build and measure targeted campaigns, and deliver personalized messaging across channels. Visit salesforce.org to learn about how Salesforce can help your college or university achieve its goals. Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. All right, welcome back to another episode of Higher Voltage. I'm so excited to have my next guest with me, Ryan Craig. We invited Ryan Craig uh, to the show today to talk about a piece he wrote recently for Inside Higher Ed called Yale in Houston. I'm excited to have this conversation with him uh, about the details and ideas that he was positing in that piece. But before we get into that, I would love to have you introduce yourself real quick, Ryan. Tell our listeners where you are, what you do, and how you do it, et cetera. Yeah. uh, So my name is Ryan Craig. I uh, run a firm called Achieve Partners, which is an investment firm in the higher ed and workforce space. Been in higher ed for almost 25 years uh, now. Started my career at Columbia University working for a guy named Mike Crow, (laughs) who became uh, president of Arizona State. Uh, has done some remarkable things uh, down there and helped launch uh, a number of successful uh, education, ed tech, online learning businesses, uh, and about a decade ago, built uh, my own uh, investment firm, which currently is focused on buyout strategy. So we buy more mature companies that are uh, in with a workforce or ed tech uh, strategy. But on the side, I uh, write. Uh, so I have a uh, a bi-weekly newsletter that goes out to about 10,000 higher ed folks called The Gap Letter. And that's reprinted in either Forbes or Inside Higher Ed when it runs. And I've uh, written now uh, three books, College Disrupted, The Great Unbundling of Higher Education in 2015, A New You, Faster and Cheaper Alternatives to College, which came out in 2018. And then just literally yesterday submitted a manuscript for my next book, which I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to talk about. (laughs) Definitely. And congratulations on that, uh, that next book. That's really exciting. I read Unbundling and that was an exciting book uh, to read as well. That was a couple of years ago. Thank you for that introduction. Um, The piece you wrote for Inside Higher Ed suggests that the path to economic mobility, which is you know on the tips of many higher ed tongues these days, uh, runs through Texas and Yale University. And I'm wondering if you can give our listeners just kind of a high level synopsis of your piece so that they can follow along with the conversation and some of the points that you made in it. Sure. Well, you know, so the idea I started by talking about Houston as being a sort of uh, microcosm of the dynamic economy uh, and the diverse economy of this country. Just remarkable growth over the past, um, you know, 20 years, really since Hurricane Katrina, uh, Houston has 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 flourished uh, economically. It is the most diverse, large metropolitan region in the country with no no group having uh being a majority is <laughs> everyone's a minority in uh in Houston and you take a look at you know sort of where they are in terms of education and higher ed in, in particular and dominated by one large public university University of Houston University of Texas uh does not have a campus uh in Houston a few years ago was going to actually bought a a plot of land and the uh, University of Houston kind of muscled them out (laughs) of uh, of doing it. And and, and the problem with that is University of Houston, you know, fine institution, but it's it's not selective. 
and uh, the outcomes, you know, are questionable uh, in terms of their graduation rate and unemployment of uh, graduates from that institution. So the only selective institution uh, in Houston is Rice. And uh, Rice, I think, um, only has a couple thousand students, I think five 5,000 students. And uh, how many of those actually come from Houston? Uh, probably a small fraction uh, and so forth. So the broader point was, and it's a point I've been making for almost a decade now uh, in my writing, is that the outcomes that Americans are seeing uh, from the non-selective institutions that 95% of students uh, enroll in, uh, meaning institutions that are either open enrollment, like community colleges or for-profit institutions or um, public and private institutions that admit more than 50% of applicants, uh, are, are generally poor. And it's not a function necessarily of colleges and universities doing a worse job than they did 10 or 20 years ago. We had a completion issue then. We have a completion issue now. Uh, so almost 50% of uh, students who matriculate at a non-selective university fail to complete um, the degree uh, program that they enrolled in. So that hasn't changed. And you can probably chalk that one up to lack of preparation uh, from our K-12 system. That hasn't changed. What has changed, though, is employment uh, outcomes. We've seen digital transformation change the economy but really hasn't have not changing uh, colleges or universities uh, to, in any real respect. They're still offering the same programs that they were 10, 20, 30 years ago, although there is uh, much more demand today for technical uh, degree programs. Uh, the large public universities and state systems uh, generally cap uh, enrollments in those programs. So if you want to major in computer science, at uh, UT El Paso, uh, you're going to have to have a, a certain GPA in order to uh, get into that program or engineering. Uh, otherwise, you're going to probably end up majoring and you'll be counseled to switch to psychology uh, or something. And so by my calculation, and these are rough numbers, between the percentage of students over the last you know 10 years, the percentage of students who have enrolled in uh, a non-selective university and either failed to complete or who've graduated into underemployment, meaning that they're taking a job out of school that they probably could have gotten uh, without the investment of time and, and cost and debt uh, in that degree is probably somewhere around 70% of students um, who are achieving a negative outcome, negative economic outcome from their decision to matriculate into a non-selective university. And people are catching on, right? We've seen now three consecutive years uh, of enrollment declines uh, at non-selective institutions in this country. Selective institutions, <laughs> you know, enrollment's off the charts, right? Uh, so I think people are realizing that a degree is not necessarily a degree. Uh, it really depends sort of where you're going and what kind of institution you're attending. And there are some non-selective institutions that you're probably best not uh, attending. And, and politically, higher ed has lost uh, a lot of support uh, on the right. And overall, uh, there are all kinds of surveys that show that uh, the value of college is coming into question when the number one policy of this administration relating to higher ed is debt forgiveness, which is really no policy relating on a go forward basis, right? What is the strategy going forward? Are we going to forgive debt again in five or 10 years time? It really raises raises a question uh, of where we are and uh, where we're non-selective colleges and universities uh, are. So my point uh, in the piece was to say, I think there's a narrative now in the population that college is in trouble, 
and that degree uh, isn't necessarily worth the time and investment uh, if there's no sort of guaranteed or you know highly probable economic outcome, and that I think we can expect enrollment to continue to fall um, for the next you know foreseeable future in non-select, and, and I'm not even including the fact that there's a demographic issue uh, coming up a cliff where uh, births, you know, 16, 17, 18 years ago uh, were down. So that's going to happen in addition. But aside from that, uh, we're going to see enrollments continue to, to fall. And so the question was, you know, how can you change the narrative? Uh, how can Higher Education Inc. change the narrative? And my answer is, I don't think that a, a single non-selective university or a series of non-selective universities are going to be able to change that narrative. I think it's going to take something on the order of a Yale, you know, coming in and, and doing something different to really reinstill national confidence in college as the natural and obvious next step for a high school graduate. And so that was the, the point of the article, a provocative headline, Yale and Houston. But, you know, Yale opened up a campus in uh, Singapore about uh, a decade ago, now is closing it. They can open up a campus in Singapore. Why can't they open up a campus in Houston in the most diverse metropolitan area that is really bereft of a selective university for students from that, you know, area? So they, you know, I think 50% of the students who enrolled at uh, uh, the, the Yale campus in Singapore were from Singapore. If Yale were to open up a campus in Houston and reserve half of the places for students who grew up uh, in Houston, that could potentially change the narratives. You know, suddenly college again becomes uh, exciting, dynamic, uh, economically advancing, socioeconomically mobile. Yeah, and I am uh, always intrigued by new ideas uh, that surface or are positioned in higher ed. And I thought this one was an interesting one for a lot of reasons. I think um, I'm always challenged with the idea that IVs are the saviors of, you know, the, the future of higher ed and economic mobility, et cetera. I'm curious why you think that the solution comes from IVs. What is it about the brand name of these schools that position them more positively than other schools that currently well, have yeah. I mean, more diversity, me. et cetera? Uh, I think if you just look at the enrollment trends, the fact that the interest in these schools, and it's not just Yale, obviously, it's, you know, you could look at the top 50 or top right. 200, so forth, but, you know, selective is the term I use, and selective is about, there are about 200 selective institutions in the in the country. And so, yeah, I, I think you've, if you just look at, you know, where the demand is, you'll see that the demand is for selective institutions, and you might say, well, you know, <laughs> by definition, uh, they're selective. And so they right. have more applicants than they have places. But my point is, and I've said this before, you know, we are selective institutions. They actually uh, serve, and really our most selective institutions serve a much smaller percentage of the American population than the elite schools do in the UK, in Canada, in Australia. And they haven't expanded at all. Harvard hasn't increased its uh, undergraduate enrollment since World War II. But meanwhile, the population has uh, more than doubled. Demand is up by an order of magnitude. Why haven't they done it? Well, you know, there's no um, there's no pressure uh, internally uh, at these institutions to do it. And there's there hasn't been enough, for me, public pressure uh, on these institutions to do more to serve their country and expand enrollment. In these institutions. So again, the point was to say, you know, how do you how does college change the narrative? How does higher education change the narrative? Because we're in decline. You know, it used to be 10, 20, 30 years ago, it was the sole path 
the only path. If you wanted to advance economically, if you wanted to uh, have a successful career, you went to college. Uh, there's no question uh, about it. Uh, my next book is called Apprentice Nation, Why an America of Apprentices uh, Will Be a Stronger, Fairer Country and How We Get There. And it's directly proposing that every American would be better off out of high school doing an apprenticeship uh, as opposed to going directly to college. Yeah. Uh, and it's really in response to the fact that everything I just talked about, the, yeah. the economic returns that we're, we're seeing now, the problem, of course, is we don't have enough apprenticeships <laughs> right. to, to, to do that. And that's what the book is really about, the policy changes and what we need to do in order to get there. But that argument resonates with a lot of Americans and certainly politically resonates with both sides of the aisle much more than uh, college for all does today. Well, I mean, the idea of selectivity, though, to me, comes from exclusivity, right? The idea that prestige is something that not everyone can have and you can't get access to all the time is what makes something prestigious. And so um, if we talk about the purpose of higher ed and it's and it's how it was created in this country, what we know about the currency in higher ed is like the fewer people who have access to it, the better it seems to be. And so this idea that selectivity, uh, selective colleges are going to be the ones to challenge the narrative of higher ed or challenge the brand of higher ed to, to help bring it to where it is, I find challenging uh, because A, they haven't done it yet. And sure. um, which you've just explained. And what was the what's the incentive for them to even do it at all if they are dealing in exclusivity? So I agree with you, but my point is it's relative, right? You can be selective and admit 30% of applicants. Uh, and that's a lot better than admitting 3% of applicants and you're going to serve a lot more students if you can you can do that by opening up say a campus in houston so you know how do they do it they do it because uh there's public pressure and trustees join these boards who recognize that uh they have uh more than a responsibility to themselves they have a responsibility to the country and that uh, higher ed and college is in trouble and that it really doesn't matter what university of houston does university of houston can launch just launch a cybersecurity degree program uh, can do X, Y, and Z that does more to address the crises of completion, affordability, uh, and employability, but it's not going to change the narrative nearly as much as it would if Yale opened up a campus in Houston. It's an interesting analogy. Um, I think part of this conversation is also about changing the mindset of those who lead these selective institutions. And I think that's the number one part, because if you don't, if people who are on the boards of trustees, who are the presidents or in the cabinets, whatever, don't understand that it's not only about the institution, it's about the people that you're serving and the country that, like you said, that the country that they're serving, then it feels like this is going to be dead in the water. So how do we get to the mindset shift that's required to understand that higher it is actually for everyone? Well, you know, I think we're still in the early innings of the decline here. So we get to the third or fourth or fifth inning here, and we've had more and more years of enrollment declines and more and more struggling colleges. And, you know, I mean, there are a million, 1.7 million young people out there who would have been in college uh, and aren't in college uh, right now. What are they doing? Well, they're either working or they're staying at home, you know, trying to be a social media uh, influencer. <laughs> but whatever it is, they're not on a career track in all likelihood. So that that's a problem. That's a problem. And and and, and we're going to be feeling the effects uh, economically uh, in a decade's time uh, that we have uh, millions of young people who, you know, don't have degrees, don't have an education, aren't on career tracks, and so forth. So. You know, it's not just the impact on higher ed, it's the impact on the country uh, more broadly. And I think that we need new models uh, of higher education that are uh, more employment aligned, 
you know, with the, the fact Agreed. that, again, that there are hundreds of universities in this country where if you want to major in uh, engineering or computer science, you just can't. And you can't because maybe you were underprepared coming out of your uh, K-12 system. You don't have the GPA. You can't get into that program. And it's kind of bimodal, right? If you, you know, you go to UT El Paso, you major in computer science, you're probably going to be fine. Or engineering, if you go to UT El Paso and you major in political science or psychology, that's a little dicey, right? Uh, who's going to hire you? What's your first job going to be out of that program? In all likelihood, you're going to be getting a job that you probably didn't need that degree uh, for, and you'll be underemployed. And if you're underemployed in your first job, we know that five years later, you're two-thirds uh, of the time still likely to be underemployed. And 10 years later, uh, half the time, you're likely to be underemployed. So that's the trouble that we're in. So I'm I'm hopeful that, you know, it used to be 50 years ago, most Americans knew who the presidents of these elite institutions were. They were public figures. Uh, that's, that's no longer the case. They're not playing a national leadership role. I think it's an opportunity for, uh, as higher education heads into this crisis, it's an opportunity for leaders of uh, the schools that, you know, I'm, not, I'm not, not the one saying they're the top schools. I think that they're the schools where there's the highest demand uh, for them. So let them lead, let them lead uh, and let them demonstrate that, you know, college uh, in its current form or some amended form uh, can be America's engine of socioeconomic mobility as it was once before. Today, I think most Americans view it more as a break uh, than as an engine of socioeconomic mobility. Yeah, I think that that part of that is right. I think that for a lot of people who are seeking higher education, one of my colleagues uh, where I work uh, had a brilliant quote in a recent survey that for a lot of people who are seeking a higher education, it is an impediment to economic mobility, not a bridge to it. And I, and I totally agree with that. I think that, I mean, I agree with the point around uh, the number of, of young people at 1.7 who might need some additional encouragement, I suppose, uh, in their job-seeking career path, et cetera. But there's also the 40 million people who have some college and no degree who um, are seem to be a prime audience for some of these selective institutions. And it feels like that would be a really great place to start is starting, you know, accepting some of these adult learners who are also uh, part of the nation's economic Absolutely. system. Does that fit into anywhere in this conversation or is it more traditionally aged? Yeah, no, I think it, it, it look, I, I, I don't divide based on, you know, whether you're 18 years old or whether you're 30 years old. Cool, uh, for cool. me, it's a question of, are you in a good job where, you know, you can work full time, support yourself and your family, and that has uh, career paths built into it? Or are you not? Yeah. And obviously, you're going to have a higher percentage of 30-year-olds <laughs> that are in that place than 18-year-olds, uh, for sure. But for me, that's the question. I want everyone to graduate from high school and have the opportunity to go into a job like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not the only one, actually. Today, there was an article. The governor of Virginia says that every student who graduates from a Virginia high school should do so with a credential or associate degree at high school graduation that would allow them to, quote, immediately be prepared to go right into life. So that's what college is, is struggling with <laughs> right now. Uh, among other mm -hmm. among other things, I right. totally agree with you. And I yeah. really appreciate your points that you make in the piece around the diversity of Houston as a case study. Some of the things we hear kind of anecdotally in the headlines around higher ed is the struggles with campuses being able to handle diversity and serve diversity, et cetera. And so I'm curious about, especially at selective institutions, because uh, selective institutions are typically primarily white. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on the other parts of the educational experience that are important 
important that makes it a whole like whole student uh, experience that these new kind of campuses that you're suggesting could. Well, I mean, to me, it's a, it's again, it's a function of capacity, right? If our top institutions have the ability to serve the same percentage of the population that peer institutions do in Canada, Australia, and the UK, uh, they'd be much more diverse. Period. End of story. You know, I think it's between four to ten times, right? The top schools in Canada, right? They're not small. The top schools in Canada are University of Toronto, uh, University of British Columbia, uh, McGill University, University of Waterloo. Those schools serve something like ten percent of the undergraduate population of the country. Compare that to the Ivy League, which is less than one percent of the population of the country. Right. So that's the challenge we have. We have an infrastructure issue. We have a supply issue. There's no reason why these schools can't be much bigger than they are. They're not going to have the same, you know, residential uh, education experience, uh, extracurricular experience necessarily. But in terms of the caliber of students they attract, the diversity of students they attract, the educational outcomes that they achieve, the employment outcomes that they, they achieve, they can do much better, much, much better than they're doing today. I would agree. And I also think that there's a history problem in higher ed, in American higher ed, right? There are there are the, the ways in which this this industry was created exclusively. Um, yeah. and so no, look, that the, is, that's the, a threat uh, that the schools I'm talking today. about are all the oldest schools and they originated yeah. in the 17th and 18th and 19th century. And they originated either as ways uh, to train the clergy or as ways for the merchant elite to uh sort of demonstrate that their kids were different, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm going, my child is going to college. He won't be working on the farm or in the middle. Right. Uh, he'll be, you know, he'll have a, he'll have a degree. So yeah, they were born out of exclusivity. Uh, right. Absolutely. But today that's not what the country needs. The country needs socioeconomic mobility. Uh, they need pathways to economic advancement. And I think the sector as a whole needs leadership. If we're going to change the, change the narrative here. And I just, I, you know, I, I wish, you know, even if we had 10 Michael Crows uh, out there, what he's done at Arizona State is phenomenal uh, because he's demonstrated that you can achieve uh, excellence and scale uh, at the same time. Uh, and I think a lot of people didn't think that was possible. Now, if it weren't Arizona State doing that, but if it were Harvard or Yale doing that, think of what the impact would be on the national conversation and on how people thought about college. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think of it. Uh, similarly, as um, the pacts that you know the billionaires of America made several years ago about giving away all of their wealth, right? The Oprah Winfrey's and the Bill Gates, right? Mm -hmm. Like the people who are at the top have more luxuries to make the decisions than the uh, than the other people in the pile. And so, I don't know what it will take for the top 200 selective institutions to decide that the rest of America is worth an educational experience. But whatever gets us from where we are now to what we need to be, I'm all for trying. And I I just think it's an interesting approach to have it go through those most selective institutions. I'm curious what yeah. your th thoughts are yeah. on the rankings, though. Like, do rankings play into this? Sure. I, mean, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I hate rankings. <laughs> I make fun of them. I uh, attack them uh, in my writing. I think they're silly. But uh, the fact of the matter is they're not going away. And uh, they definitely feed into the demand and uh, the narrative. So... Think about how many New York Times uh, articles uh, are on sort of what's happening at the elite schools versus what's happening at UT El Paso. That's where the national conversation happens. And so I think that to change the national conversation, it, you know, for better or worse, I'm not in favor of it, but I'm a realist. And I think that in order to change the national conversation now, change needs to occur at those institutions.
Mm-hmm. Um, that's our best hope. Now, you know, Matt, Matt Reed, uh, Matt can do incredible things at his community college, but it's not going to change the national conversation. It may change things locally. He's definitely going to, you know, change lives, but it's not going to, you know, keep 1.7 million students in the system. Hmm. Um, and so when we talk about uh, the future of higher education uh, and you list, you know, some you know, example kind of alliterations at the end of your piece, like I was about to say Penn and Philadelphia, which obviously is already there, but <laughs> some of the other ones I can't right. remember. Yeah. Uh, you know, some yeah. I mean, so yeah, Cleveland. the point is that we've seen little leadership and a lot of followership among these institutions. And so if we could get some leadership, Agreed. we might get some followers. And so Yale could launch in Houston and Stanford could launch in Stockton. And, you know, look, if the 20 most in need metropolitan areas had new campuses of selective institutions opening up with a commitment to serve students from those cities on a need blind basis, that would change the narrative. I I mean, I like the idea and concept. Uh, I think it could be really cool. And I think that that feels like an interesting version of what the future of higher ed could look like. Is there other other components to the future of higher ed that you feel like are going to be important to get us to where we need to be? Well, for sure. Look, I think that universities need to recognize that uh, technical degrees uh, pay off in a way that non-technical degrees uh, don't. And they need to really focus on increasing capacity for uh, technical and STEM degrees. Not all STEM degrees, by the way, (laughs) biology. Uh, and so forth. Those don't pay off, but they're, you know, computer science, engineering and, and the like. Anybody who wants to major in those should be able to. You should not should not be shut out. And that probably means that you need to think about faculty differently. All full time faculty should not necessarily need to have a doctoral degree. They could be practitioners. They could come out of industry, uh, for example. That's not the way colleges and universities uh, hire today for faculty. You know, broadly, this is a point I make in the first chapter of my new book colleges are really closed off to the real economy in ways that are uh, unaffordable uh, at, totally. this, at, this, at this juncture. So in terms of the academic programs we offer, in terms of how we think about faculty and constituting the, fa- the, the, the faculty and who's teaching uh, classes, in terms of the rankings conversation we were just having, like that's a very inside baseball right. thing. <laughs> it doesn't right. really have an impact on the real world, but all kinds of decisions are made in terms of you know how we price, what programs we're offering, where we're investing our money that are based on rankings uh, rather than the outcomes uh, for our uh, our students. So all of those things I think need to change. And obviously connection to employment uh, and employability uh, and right. employers uh, that need to be. I wrote a piece last week called Abolish Career Services, which is all about the fact that you know, you have career services at this one office. Uh, and by doing that, uh, it basically absolves the other 99% of the university from responsibility for helping uh, your graduates get good jobs. Uh, and that's a real problem. And that career services should not be a last mile function. It should be a first mile function. And every faculty member and staff member and administrator should be responsible and accountable for helping students get jobs. And career services should probably be a support function, uh, helping the other 99% develop networks, reach out best practices in terms of helping to connect students with employers uh, and employment. So that's a good example of something that really ought to happen that isn't happening, uh, in part because it's not being measured. So for example, if you ask a typical university, I don't care, selective or non-selective, what are your graduates' outcomes? The best you're going to hear, the the most detail you're going to hear is that, oh, 
Well, we know, we've surveyed our, uh, you know, the class of 2021, and we know that nine months after graduation, uh, 85% are either employed or in some graduate or professional school. Well, great. <laughs> right. What are the employees doing? Are they working in Starbucks? Are they working in an Amazon warehouse? And that's only the responders. That's not a comprehensive survey. That's just the folks who, who bothered to respond to your right. email survey. So the problem is that neither the federal government uh, nor accreditors require uh, accredited colleges and universities to track the outcomes uh, of their graduates. The focus has been on the outcomes of for-profit college graduates, which is pretty bad uh, for the most part. There are some major exceptions, but um, uh, for the most part, poor. But the reality is that non-selective, non-profit and public institutions also have negative outcomes, as we discussed, and they're not tracking it. They're not incentivized to track it. And you know, it's only going to change once enrollment continues to drop uh, and they recognize they have a problem and they need to change fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think those are all great points. And I look forward to reading your piece around career services. We'll have a link to that on our episode page as well. Um, I'm excited to check out your new book as well. When is that going to come out? When is that going to come February, out? February. So yeah, okay. Apprentice Nation, Why in America of Apprentices Will Be a Stronger, Fairer Country and How We Get There. Awesome. Ryan Craig, thank you so much for joining us today on Higher Voltage. It was a great chat and we'd love to have you back sometime. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Awesome. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2. 